because I have a dream. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. Happy New Year, David, our first podcast of 2022. Wow. We've been at this for a while. (laughs) Yes, yes, when you put it that way. (laughs) A new year. Wow. Okay, so we're getting old, David, but uh, the good news about us getting old is that it means there's lots of history behind us to talk about. So, David, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's July 1st, 1506, and in the castle at Buda in Hungary, the queen has just given birth prematurely. Frantic doctors try wrapping the newborn prince inside recently butchered animal carcasses in a desperate attempt to keep him warm enough. Everyone in the country, a country which a mere 16 years ago went through vicious civil strife when the former king died without a legitimate male heir, is delighted when, a month later, the doctors announce that the worst is past. The country's heir to the throne will survive. Wow, David, that is quite a miracle because in 1506 as you're pointing out that they're using animal carcasses to try and keep the baby warm they did not have modern medicine on their side in terms of dealing with a premature birth but it's good news the baby is okay it's really not an ideal replacement for an incubator no but yes it was an unlikely accomplishment with the medical technology of 1506 to have a prematurely born baby survive. And it's so much more significant in Hungary in this moment because Louis, Louis II of Hungary, will be the only child of Vladislaus, the king of Hungary in 1506. So this is major political importance to the nation of Hungary and also obviously an intense private miracle for the royal family. Yeah, David, it always is sort of a funny thing to modern ears how much is wrapped up in the survival of the child of the king. You were not used to these monarchies where really the country, the whole country is depending on the king's heir surviving. Right, whereas in Europe, in the Middle Ages, and in 1506, we're still essentially more or less in the Middle Ages, arguably the start of the early modern period, but only barely. They'd be really used to thinking in terms of monarchies, in terms of dynasties, and particularly in Hungary, which is sort of a border country between Catholic and Islamic civilizations, I guess you could say, a stable political dynasty is critically important to the people who live there. So David, Louis II, born, he survived this premature birth, and he is now the heir of Hungary. Is his life going to be as simple as that? Well, that's not exactly simple. So Hungary is on the one hand, to its east, it borders the Ottoman Empire, the big, expanding, recently overthrew the Byzantine Empire, Islamic power that is reaching Europe, and it's the first time you're getting a direct connection, a direct land frontier between European powers and Islamic powers. To its west, its neighbors are the Holy Roman Empire, 
the Habsburg dynasty, a growing expansionist power that is trying to essentially reunify Europe. They view themselves as the heirs to the Roman Empire and therefore view expansion as a morally justified act. And in the middle, you've got Hungary, this relatively small kingdom comparatively that is large enough to be a major player in its own right, but which is well aware that on both sides there are these expansionist powers that definitely want to take it over if they can. And that leads Hungary to take extreme measures in some cases to try and increase their own defenses and their military. And that in turn means that they need to show political unity to the world at all times, which means that before young Louis is five years old, He's already been officially crowned co-king of Hungary, co-king with his father who's still alive, so that they can demonstrate that there's a clear continuity succession. There's not just one person who can be killed in order to sort of destabilize Hungary. So at a very young age, a lot of pressure is already being put on Louis to make sure that outside powers understand that Hungary is strong and unified, or at least that's the image they want to project, an image that is not always as true as the kings in Buddha would like it to be. Well, David, a five-year-old for a king, no way that could go wrong. I hope he at least got a later bedtime out of it. So what happens to Louis's father, Vladislav, David? Is he going to live to a ripe old age, or are we going to have a succession scenario sooner rather than later. So Vladislav dies in 1516. He's only 60. And so really neither very old nor a ripe old age nor a long period for Louis to settle into being officially co-king before Vladislav dies apparently of natural causes. So Louis is about 10 years old at this point, David? Louis is 10 years old. His official regent running the country in a diplomatic move is the regency is granted to the actual Holy Roman Emperor of the time. But since Hungary doesn't want to be annexed into the empire, in practice, the regency is controlled by a council of three Hungarian noblemen who all hate each other and spend their time fighting with each other rather than raising Louis or organizing the defenses on either border as the major powers start to take advantage of this obvious moment of weakness. So that's not looking good for Hungary, David. They are stuck between some very large empires and their king is just 10 years old and really no one is looking out for the country as a whole because these regents are fighting amongst themselves. Who's going to make the first move, David, in trying to maybe take advantage of this situation? So the initial advantage, both the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottomans make some moves during the Regency period, while Louis is still too young to be running anything. And even in these early days, the Ottomans begin demanding 
tribute, uh, begin demanding money from the Hungarians, and when they don't get it, they seize some Hungarian border territories officially as recompense for not receiving tribute, but unofficially just as a way of seizing a little bit of territory. The Holy Roman Empire, on the other hand, starts pushing more political control. They start making more and more efforts to try and seize political control of the Hungarian kingdom in order to prepare for a formal annexation. And as part of that, they arrange for Louis, still at this point a child, to be married to Mary of Austria, the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Well, this is how it tends to play out in European politics of the era, right, David? Marriage is a way of forming political alliances. Is this going to create the alliance that the Holy Roman Empire would like between themselves and Louis Hungary? Well, the thing is that by doing this, of course, the Habsburg dynasty, the Holy Roman Empire, is only provoking the Ottomans more. The more that it seems that Hungary is joining with the Holy Roman Empire, the more that the Ottomans feel the need to be more aggressive against Hungary to avoid a more powerful Catholic state on their borders. And this, in turn, drives more Ottoman attacks on Hungary, leading up to about 1521 or so, when you start to see really a petering off of the Ottoman attacks temporarily, which is driven actually by the Ottomans having a whole different war going on with Venice. There's a famous siege of the island of Rhodes. I'm not going to go into that, but the Ottomans have other priorities in that moment. And meanwhile, Louis uses the lowered Ottoman threat as an opportunity to personally start taking some actual control over his kingdom. So he's now 15 years old, David. He's 15 years old, and he's already making a sustained effort to try and take some of his powers away from the Regency Council, who are unpopular because they're not unified, and take some direct power himself. Yes. So what can a 15-year-old king do, David, stuck between these two empires and looking to take control of his country? Well, unfortunately, maybe Louis is a 15-year-old, and so he gets sucked into a strategy that, in retrospect, is probably not the best one for Hungary. But it was one that was advocated at the time and thought through and not as wasteful as it might seem, he wanted to project an image of courtly power to try and suggest that the Hungarian court was wealthy and unworried and hope that this would rally the morale of the population to his side, hope that it would encourage some of Hungary's traditional allies, most of whom had deserted her during the civil strife when his father Vladislaus acceded to the throne. I've already referred to there being some difficulties at that time period, and one of the elements of those difficulties was a general weakening of Hungary's position, and Louis is hoping that he can sort of bring that back by demonstrating wealth, by going out, holding parties, doing big public events, 
And the hope is that this will bring back strong allies like Wallachia under the king before Louis's father. Wallachia was an ally of Hungary under Vlad Dracula, actually the famous Count Dracula. And he's hoping he can sort of win these powers back by making them believe that Hungary is wealthier than it is. So he starts spending on court painters, lavish parties, things like that. So he's going to manifest, David, that they are rich, show it to the world, and hopefully it'll come true. Right. But the flip side, of course, is that it's not true. He is broke. Before he ever acceded to the throne, his father had made some unwise agreements with the nobles to cut taxation in order to help him reach the throne. Then the Regency Council, consisting of nobles, made more tax breaks for the nobles. Now, Louis doesn't have the tax base that has supported successful Hungarian armies in the past, which means he doesn't have enough money to pay for the things he needs to pay for, and he's going all out on this strategy of having big, lavish public spectacles in order to try and hide his financial problems. But of course, at the same time, that only makes his financial problems worse. Ah, that would seem to be a bit of a problem, David. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to have to pay for all the parties that you're throwing, as many 15-year-olds find out in one way or another. So what is Louis going to do? Is he going to be able to continue throwing parties, David, or is he going to have to have a tax the rich movement? Well, in the short term, Louis initially tries all of the desperate things that kings try when they can't raise taxes because he knows that his position is unstable. He knows he's unpopular with many noble factions, especially because he's been pushing to get more power from his Regency Council earlier than he should get it. And the Regency Council, as previously noted, was made up of nobles, so the nobles aren't happy about this. So he's doing things like he's pawning off the crown jewels, literally pawning them to major banking families in order to get temporary cash to cover temporary expenses. And he's doing things like raising money in special one-time deals with cities and wealthy magnates who have specific things that they want that the king can do for them, doing anything to stave off personal bankruptcy. But of course, all of this means that the military in particular is underfunded and the situation continues to get worse as Louis grows up, moving us towards 1526, when Louis is 20, and everything starts coming to a head at once. Right, David, it's never a good idea to underpay the guys who are protecting you. So what's going to happen in 1526 that brings all of this to a conclusion, to a head? So the thing is that we mentioned that the Ottomans were distracted, they had a war with Venice, and Hungary was not their priority. But the war with Venice ends, as wars do, and the Hungarians had to take a little bit of time to rebuild their forces and prepare. But by 1526, they're ready for a new war with Hungary, and they don't care. Who knows it? They're going all out, making big, obvious preparations, military preparations on the border. They're reaching out to allies, the same people who... Louis was hoping to get on his side with these big lavish parties, 
are mostly joining with the Ottomans because leaders of little countries like Wallachia are still capable of seeing that the Ottomans have real power and Louis just has parties and one of those is more important than the other. And so, in 1526, faced with this crisis, Louis decides the only thing he can do is raise as much of an army as he can and march for the border to fight the Ottomans. This is critical. So critical that he finally accepts an alliance with the Holy Roman Empire who give him enough money to help cover some of his more immediate military needs and also loan him a small number of troops, but not enough troops to make a real difference in the coming campaign. And now he is on an immediate crash course with the Ottomans militarily and with the knowledge that if he doesn't win and win big enough to help pay back some of his debts to the Holy Roman Empire, then his country will effectively become a portion of the Holy Roman Empire once this is over. So he's selling out to one enemy so that he can fight another enemy. This was always a tenuous position that he was in, David, between these two empires. And now he heads to war with the Ottoman Empire. Is there any hope for Hungary here? Well, in the immediate period of 1526, when he's raising his army, there's a little period where ordinary Hungarians start to feel a little bit more hopeful than they have been for the earlier portion of his reign. The squabbling magnates are mostly brought into line. The Ottoman threat is too clear, too big. It can't be ignored. So most of the internal disputes in Hungary are at least temporarily papered over. He raises military forces, large numbers, mostly untrained levies from the feudal organization. And this is not ideal. It's not the way that the powerful black army of Hungary was raised in past reigns of past great kings like Matthias Corvinus, but at least it's something. At least there are large numbers of troops being raised, being gathered, being prepared. He's got his Austrian allies. He's only got about 3,000 Austrian troops sent to him by the Holy Roman Emperor, but by parading them around, he's able to raise morale of some of his, his people by showing that they're not abandoned, that they have allies. And so he marches this force towards the Ottoman border, towards this one big climactic showdown that he's already pinning his hopes on. His experienced officers want to fight a campaign of sieges, try and hold defensive positions against the Ottomans, where the Ottoman strengths will be minimized and the Hungarian numbers will at least be able to be used effectively. But Louis doesn't agree. He needs to win fast. He's already in trouble and in hawk to the Austrians. Waiting is bad. So he wants a single open field battle, which will give the chance for a quick victory, even with higher risks. And of course, he's the king, so he gets what he wants. The Hungarian army advances to a place called Mohax, where they'll fight the Ottomans, and it's a complete disaster. 
Well, David, that is not good. I guess we could have seen that coming. He's got an inexperienced army raised at the last minute here to try and prevent this invasion. He himself, an inexperienced king, and rushing to do it, not doing it the way his military advisors are suggesting, but trying to get it all done in one quick battle. So what goes wrong? So Mohax is a triumph of the Ottomans' new military system. The Ottomans have a new kind of infantry. They call them the Janissaries. They're not new in the sense that, you know, there's been units called the Janissaries for a long time. But these Janissaries are armed with muskets and use gunpowder weapons as infantry weapons on the battlefield, not just in sieges attacking cities, which the Hungarians have already been very successful at. And they've copied the tactics of, well, they've copied elements of tactics from the Hussites, who are another people, I believe we had a podcast discussing them quite a while ago. Yeah, David, if you're interested in the Hussites, you have to go all the way back to episode five. That was the blind general. So go way back in the archives on whatever podcast app you're listening on, and you can find out more about that. So they're also active in the Eastern European region, and they've developed the art of using cannon on wagons in the field as a combat arm. And now the Ottomans have copied that and improved it and are using cannon on field-mounted carriages that are lightweight and effective. So the Ottomans have a much better gunpowder-based army than the Hungarians were expecting. The Hungarian army uses even fewer gunpowder weapons than is typical for the time because so many of them are inexperienced levies. But meanwhile, the Ottomans also have light cavalry forces with experienced commanders that they use to surround and outrun the heavy Hungarian knightly horse. So the Ottomans are able to trap the Hungarians using their light cavalry and then crush them using their gunpowder and cannons. And so the Hungarian army is almost entirely destroyed by this combination of superior enemy training, tactics, experience, and weaponry. Louis himself dies in the retreat. He drowns in a river. He falls into the river when his horse is trying to cross it, and he can't get out because of his heavy armor. It's a sort of ironic little symbolism of the way his entire army has been held back by the ideals of the European medieval past, fighting a more modern and efficient Ottoman army. And that's effectively the end for the kingdom of Hungary as a whole. The remainder of the kingdom that isn't conquered by the Ottoman troops will end up as just another portion of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, David, so the boy who was born prematurely but miraculously survived, he fought through so much in those early days of his life, cannot survive this latest threat to his country he falls as you say ironically clinging to the old way of fighting as the ottoman empire improves their tactics and strategies and that's it for hungary david that's that's going to do them in as they're crushed by these two empires on either side indeed there won't be a formal independent hungarian power until after the first world war 
and the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is what the Holy Roman Empire will be renamed to after the Napoleonic Wars. So, a very, very long time before there will be an independent Hungary again. And it seems like his mistake, David, was trying the strategy of faking it till you're making it and blowing through money in an effort to appear as if he had more money than he really had. But, you know, really a youthful mistake that it's easy to understand why a 15-year-old king would make that sort of mistake. Oh, it's certainly easy to understand every step of the way why Hungarian politics fought against taxation so hard when you think about it from the perspective of the nobles and the peasants who had to pay taxes. Of course, taxes are never popular. Why King Vladislaus did everything he could to pretend that Hungary was unified and make this show of Hungarian unity, even if it meant ignoring problems in order to demonstrate unity. And then why Louis went and tried to create this spectacle to cover up the increasingly obvious flaws. All those are very natural human reactions, but the collection of all of them together is a disaster for the once proud Hungarian kingdom. Well, David, I'm sure there's an important lesson to be learned here, but uh, we'll leave that to listeners to figure out. Thanks for telling us this story. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed it, do follow us on social media at When Art Thou. We appreciate your likes and comments and all of the great stuff that you share with us on social media. And we'll try and share some good stuff with you as well. David, we always like to end with something lighter. So how about a quiz? We could do a quiz, Neil. All right, David, I thought we would do a on this day quiz, David. So all of the questions relate to one day in history. And today I thought we'd go with January 6th. January 6th. All right. All right. One six, David. In 1536, the first European school of higher learning in the Americas was opened in which city? The first European school of higher learning in the Americas all the way back, did you say 1536? That is right, David. Wow. I mean, that's extremely early. So I gotta suspect that it's Spanish colonization. I can't see the English opening an institute of higher learning that early. So I'm going to guess that the city is St. Augustine in Florida. Good guess, David. You were correct about it being a Spanish institution. It was the Colegio de Santa Cruz de Tataloco in Mexico City. In 1540, Henry VIII married this German woman, his fourth wife. Henry VIII's fourth wife. German. I'm not good with Henry VIII. I should be. I listened to the soundtrack from the musical Six once, but... I can't imagine that it was our sister who made you listen to that soundtrack, David. Why would you assume I would need to be forced to listen to a musical soundtrack, Neil? But I'm going to guess Anne of Cleves. You are correct, David. Anne of Cleves, his fourth wife, who he married on January 6th, 1540. Let's go to 1884. This Czech friar dies. After his death, he was recognized as the father of genetics. The father of genetics, famous for his work on pea flowers. If I'm remembering correctly, that would be Gregor Mendel. You are remembering correctly, David. Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, died January 6, 1884. In 1912, 
Nicknamed the Land of Enchantment, this area became the 47th U.S. state. The 47th U.S. state nicknamed the Land of Enchantment and only becoming a state as late as 1912. Ooh, that's a tricky one. It's got to be somewhere on the West Coast. Maybe I'll guess California. It was actually New Mexico, David, the 47th U.S. state, the Land of Enchantment. And... A sports question for you, David. January 6, 1994, Nancy Kerrigan is attacked and injured by an assailant hired by her rival's ex-husband in an attempt to prevent her from competing in what sport? Nancy Kerrigan. I honestly don't know, so I'll just make a wild guess. Was this tennis? It was actually a winter sport, David. Figure skating, the U.S. championships. Her rival was Tanya Harding. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 